0: NBC screws up on a major claim about Michael Cohen. The Huffington Post is pushing fish sex. I am not joking. And we get into the mailbag. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. Yep, things are real weird. We'll get to all of the news in just one second. First, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at the USCCA. So, you like exercising your Second Amendment rights. I know that you do. So, this is ad is for you because how would you like the perfect handgun for self-defense? One that includes a laser built right into the grip. Okay, well, I have some big news for you. You know, I'm a proud supporter of the Second Amendment. Obviously, I believe that law abiding citizens who are trained in firearms should own firearms and and shoot with them and go shooting with them and have them available for self-defense. Well, for a limited time, the USCCA is giving five of my listeners a 1000 bucks each to buy a brand new Kimber Micro and extra ammo, which is a pretty awesome deal. There's a reason I'm a U.S. member, aside from the free gun that they are giving away right now. But right now, five of you could take home $1,000 for free. Just go to defendmyfamilynow.com to lock in your five chances to win. All of this ends on the 25th, so you have to hurry. Remember, they're giving away five Kimbers, so you will instantly get five free chances to win. Simply go to defendmyfamilynow.com to enter right now. Right now, go to defendmyfamilynow.com, and you have five of you have a chance to take home $1,000 each to buy a brand new Kimber Micro and extra ammo which is awesome. There's a reason that the USCCA is a growing concern. And again, the reason for that is because they don't just provide you education in gun use, they also provide you insurance in case, God forbid, you actually have to pull the trigger on somebody invading your home. And right now, you also have the shot at winning that Kimber. So go to defendmyfamilynow.com for your five chances to win. That is defendmyfamilynow.com, defendmyfamilynow.com. My friends over at the USCCA doing spectacular work, you should go over and join and make sure you register to win those Kimbers. Again, defendmyfamilynow.com. All righty, so... Yesterday, the big news was that NBC reported that the FBI had actually been wiretapping Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen is, of course, President Trump's personal lawyer. And the idea here was that when they raided Michael Cohen's office, that had come after weeks of them tapping Michael Cohen's phone. This would have been huge news considering that Michael Cohen, as Trump's personal lawyer, presumably was talking with President Trump. There was also a rumor that they had, well, NBC News reported it just as fact that Trump had talked with Michael Cohen, which would have meant that the FBI was essentially wiretapping calls on which the President of the United States was present, which would be an amazing, amazing claim. Well, then that sort of fell apart. So NBC News had to retract all of that, and they had to, Issue a correction. They said earlier today, NBC News reported there was a wiretap on the phone of Michael Cohn, President Trump's longtime personal attorney, citing two separate sources with knowledge of the legal proceedings involving Cohn. But three senior U.S. officials now dispute that, saying the monitoring of Cohn's phones was limited to a log of phone calls known as a pen register, not a wiretap where investigators can actually listen to calls. Okay, well, that's not the same thing at all. Okay, I worked in a prosecutor's office for a summer out here in Los Angeles, and we were able to obtain call records for virtually anybody by subpoenaing the phone company. So all that is is just a list of phone numbers. And then you cross-check the phone numbers against the person who has the phone number. That is not the same thing as listening to the contents of the phone call. It's a pretty massive retraction. And again, this is just the latest crazy retraction from the media in a long line of them over the past few weeks. The media have been going so into, past few weeks, past few months, the media has been going so insane over Trump. They've been trying their best to take down Trump. Every story is gonna be the tick, 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 boom that takes down Trump. And Benjamin Wittes, who is a legal reporter, he's constantly using that sort of framework on Twitter. He's constantly saying, tick-tock, tick-tock, as though it's just a matter of time until the bomb goes off and Trump's presidency is destroyed. And you can see that this is how the media cover these issues. I mean, yesterday, there was another story that was just like this. There was a a story that was passed around the media, a huge story that Bob Mueller had requested 70 blank subpoenas in the case against Paul Manafort. The supposed idea here is that he was going to subpoena President Trump, that these blank subpoenas show that he was going hard after Paul Manafort. Well, not really. A blank subpoena is just something that you get drawn up. It's the same thing as ordering blue pens. Okay, it's literally, it's literally a form. So ordering blank subpoenas in a major case is not a shock at all. But the media treated this as though this were a major development. Wow, he ordered a blank subpoena. Under Title IV, Rule 17 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, the clerk must issue a blank subpoena signed and sealed to the party requesting it, and that party must fill in the blanks before the subpoena is served. So that, of course does not actually say anything about who's going to be served or the relevance of what is going to be served, but the media went nuts over it anyway. You remember a few weeks ago, McClatchy reported that Michael Cohen, the president's personal lawyer, had in fact visited Prague. The reason that that would make a difference is because there were accusations, as you recall, in the Buzzfeed dossier, in the in the crazy dossier filled with allegations about Trump stripping Russian prostitutes and such. There are allegations in there that Michael Cohen had visited Prague to coordinate with Russian agents during the election cycle. And well, McClatchy had written an entire story about how, after Michael Cohen had denied this and shown his passport, that it was not true that Michael Cohen, in fact, was in Prague. Well, they reported that Michael Cohen was in Prague and that, that he was lying. And then they provided no substantiating evidence. There's not been a second report that confirms that. So there's no more evidence of that than there was when McClatchy claimed it. And yet that story is just sort of sitting out there. This sort of error has become supremely common in the media. ABC News, if you recall, a few months back, had to correct a bombshell story in which they suggested that Michael Flynn had been instructed by Donald Trump to coordinate with the Russians during the campaign. Right During World News Tonight, ABC News investigative reporter Brian Ross had said the source had provided the initial information for his story, and that that initial story prompted the Dow to fall 350 points because there was the suggestion that suddenly the Trump administration was in serious trouble because of the report that said that Flynn was prepared to testify that Trump directed him to make contact with the Russians, which would have been the Trump-Russia collusion case proven to a T. It turns out that Trump instructed Flynn, if anything, to talk to the Russians after Trump had already been elected in December of 2016, right? ABC News had to retract that report. And you'll recall that CNN had to retract a similar report, right, CNN had to correct a report about Donald Jr., uh, about Donald Jr. uh, connecting with WikiLeaks. And the New York Times reported this back in December, of 2017, CNN on Friday corrected an erroneous report that Donald Trump Jr. had received advance notice from the anti-secrecy group WikiLeaks about a trove of hack documents that it planned to release during last year's presidential campaign. In fact, the email to Mr. Trump was sent a day after the documents stolen from the DNC were made available to the general public. The point that I'm making here is that you can tell the agenda of the media by the errors that the media makes. The media never make errors in the other direction. The errors never, The media never make errors about Obama, to this extent, they never did while he was president. They never make errors to Nancy about Nancy Pelosi to this extent. They certainly never make errors about Na- Debbie Wasserman Schultz to this extent. and it's it's a really incredible thing that the media continue to trot out stories without fully vetting them. Now, look, everybody makes mistakes, right? I've made mistakes in my reporting. We've apologized for mistakes at Daily Wire. You know way back when, when I wrote for Breitbart News, I ran a report that specifically said that we were reporting a rumor, and the rumor could be not true had been sourced highly by a member of the Senate uh, in, in which it ac- accused Chuck Hagel of having, the, the, who was then the nominee for Secretary of Defense under President Obama, of having coordinated with a group called Friends of Hamas. The group turned out not to exist. It was, a, it was a bad story. We shouldn't have run it. It was a mistake, right? People make mistakes. I get that people make mistakes. That particular story we had said at the beginning was a rumor anyway, so it wasn't like we were hiding the ball there, but it was still a mistake. We shouldn't have run it in the first place. Okay, that said... The question of which direction make the mistakes reveals your bias. Now, I was biased against Chuck Hagel, so I was probably more likely to believe a bad story about Chuck Hagel. The media proclaim that they are objective. The media proclaim that they are fully just trying to report the news, right? It's not biased. There's no favor for any candidate or any president. That obviously is untrue. When every single error is in one specific direction, you have to acknowledge that something is happening there. And every error with regard to Trump has been against Trump. Every error with regard to President Obama seemed to be in favor of President Obama. The erroneous reporting by the media about President Trump is astonishing and stunning. It it does make a certain amount of sense considering the the quickness of the news cycle, but all of these big screw-ups are directly playing into President Trump's campaign to suggest that everything is fake news. Now, I'll tell you something I don't like. What I've seen from the right is MSNBC is fake news, CNN is fake news, New York Times is fake news. No, a news story is fake news. Right? If the news story is wrong, then it is fake news. To suggest that the entire outlet is fake news throws out the baby with the bathwater. Now, you can say that some, that some publications are more trustworthy than others. Right? I've been ripping on InfoWars. I don't think InfoWars is a trustworthy source of information, by and large. Okay? And you can, you can take that down the line. You know, I think that CNN is less trustworthy than The Wall Street Journal. I think that you know, I, I would not put InfoWars and CNN in the same category when it comes to reporting standards, but... Obviously, you can have gradations of how much you trust a particular outlet, but to suggest an entire outlet is fake news, and everything they do is fake news, I think is a large-scale mistake. But all you're doing, media, are playing you're playing into President Trump's hands. You're playing directly into President Trump's hands when you jumped the gun and you report things that have not been verified. It's a huge mistake, and I'm, I'm shocked that the media continues to make these sorts of mistakes. Meanwhile, President Trump continues to struggle for a legal strategy on Michael Cohen. So Rudy Giuliani is still out there trying to play sort of offense for President Trump in the Michael Cohen investigation. He came out and he said that Jeff Sessions should end the Mueller investigation. Uh, he should end the. He should presumably also end the Michael Cohen investigation. He says that all of this has gone too far. Giuliani is, of course, Trump's new lawyer. And here's what he had to say about the Mueller investigation, which he feels is a witch hunt.
1: Kim young- un uh, impressed enough to be releasing three prisoners today. And I've got to go there and, and Jay Sekulow and the We have to go there and prepare him for for this silly deposition about a case in which he supposedly colluded with the Russians, but there's no evidence of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody forgets
0: the basis of the case is dead. Sessions should step in and close it. Okay, now, this, here's the real problem. If Sessions, of course, steps in and closes the investigation, he's already recused himself from all the Trump-Russia stuff, so he'd have to end that recusal, step back in, and finish the investigation, or fire Rod Rosenstein, or he should go, presumably, and Rosenstein and Mueller, All of this is not going to benefit President Trump. The only thing that can hurt President Trump about the Mueller investigation in any serious way is if Trump were to step in and fire Robert Mueller. Now, there are people who are proclaiming that Rudy Giuliani is just promoting a rip off the Band-Aid strategy, that this thing can drag on for another year and a half, all the way through the 2020 election. So let's just rip off the Band-Aid, fire Mueller. There'll be a blowback for two months, and then everybody will be over it. Maybe that's true. Maybe it's not. I happen to think it's probably not true, because the James Comey thing is still haunting President Trump, and it's a year and a half after he fired James Comey. Well, it's about a year after he fired James Comey. So I, I just don't think that's going to go the way that Giuliani thinks that it's going to go. And Giuliani, it seems, has been speaking a little bit out of turn. So one of the big questions about Giuliani on Hannity the other night, so you recall Rudy Giuliani suggested on Sean Hannity show that Trump knew about the $130,000 payoff to Stormy Daniels. And he suggested that Trump had done so in the run-up to the election, and Cohen had done so in the run-up to the election, which could create legal peril for President Trump. Well, President Trump has now responded to Rudy Giuliani's comments. And in a second, I'm going to show you what President Trump had to say about those comments because it's uh, it's pretty funny. But first, I want to say thanks to our sponsors over at Skillshare. So Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, design, technology, and more. Look, you know that in five years, you probably won't be working the same job that you are now. You have to constantly be making your resume better in this market. People don't stick around at jobs the way your grandfather did, getting that gold watch. Instead, you're constantly looking to increase your income by broadening your skill set. Well, that's where Skillshare comes in. They have classes in everything. We're talking about 20,000 classes. People at Daily Wire are taking all sorts of these classes. I've taken classes in social media marketing and illustration now. Okay, you can take those classes. You can take them in creative writing, mobile photography, pretty much anything. They have an expert who's ready to teach you a class. These are 45-minute classes. They're very user-friendly. You can ask questions. It's interactive. It's really, really good. Again, Skillshare makes sure that you are constantly making your resume that much better. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for my listeners. You get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. So Skillshare is offering my listeners, again, two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents to sign up. Go to Skillshare.com slash at That's Skillshare.com slash to start that two months now. Skillshare.com slash Use that slash Apiro that they know what we sent you. And again, there's a reason that people around the Daily Wire offices are using Skillshare. There's a reason I've used Skillshare to make my skills better. It's, it really is tremendous. And the teachers are first rate. Skillshare.com slash for that special deal. Two months of unlimited access to those 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. Once you've started, you're not going to want to stop learning. Okay, so President Trump has now responded to Rudy Giuliani's odd statement. Uh, and he says that Rudy is just sort of saying things.
2: Rudy is a great guy, but he just started a day ago. So Rudy knows it's a witch hunt. He started yesterday.
0: Uh, he'll get his facts straight. He's a great guy. But what he does is he feels it's a very bad thing for our country, and he happens to be. it. Okay, so, <laughs> so Trump is throwing a little bit more chum in the water there by saying, Rudy may not know what he's talking about. He may know what he's talking about. But the question is why Trump likes what Rudy is doing. And the answer might be that what Trump really likes from Rudy is he likes a guy on TV who is saying witch hunt over and over and over again. Now, it is my belief that this may, in fact, end up being a witch hunt, that this may, in fact, end up being nothing. There's new information out today that the prosecution of Paul Manafort may actually be falling apart, which is amazing. Like, if you can't prosecute Manafort for collusion, then I'm not sure how exactly you're going to prosecute anybody else. I mean, it's really amazing. So, according to the Washington Post, a federal judge in Virginia on Friday grilled lawyers from the Office of Special Counsel Robert Mueller about the motivations for bringing a bank and tax fraud case against former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort. You don't really care about Mr. Manafort's bank fraud, Judge T.S. Ellis said during a morning hearing. You really care about getting information Mr. Manafort can give you that would reflect on Mr. Trump and lead to his prosecution or impeachment. I mean, boom, ouch. Manafort was seeking to have the bank and tax fraud charges against him dismissed in federal court in Alexandria, with his lawyers alleging that the crimes have nothing to do with the election or with President Trump. Ellis agreed. He made no immediate decision on the defense motion. He said, even without such a connection, the special counsel may well have the authority to bring the charges, saying, I'm not saying it's illegitimate, but Manafort has also filed similar motions in the D.C. federal court where he faces charges of money laundering, making false statements, failing to follow lobbying disclosure laws and working as as an unregistered foreign agent. So it is, he's pleading not guilty to all of these counts, stemming from his work for a pro-Russian political boss in Ukraine. The longtime lobbyist has argued that Rod Rosenstein overstepped, given the special counsel's office a blank check to go after Manafort in the first place. And it appears that the federal judge feels the same way. Again, we have seen very little evidence coming out from Robert Mueller about what exactly he has here and the indictments that have come down. Do not lead me to believe that he's got a lot on President Trump, which is one of the reasons he wants to get President Trump in front of him to testify. Now, that is a separate question from whether Trump should fire Mueller. Listen, I know that the popular talk radio position is that Trump should fire Mueller and we should just, you know, throw four sheets to the wind. Everything will be fine. Fire Mueller. It'll all be fine. I don't think that's right. I think that the president should let this play out. I think the president would be making a very large mistake if he were not to let this play out because, again... What the left wants is for President Trump to step on his own toes. They want President Trump to make a big boo-boo here by firing Mueller so that they can turn around and say the reason he fired Mueller is not because the investigation was going nowhere, it's because it was going somewhere. Instead, why doesn't Trump just let the investigation go nowhere? It's not damaging him. The polls right now have Trump at about 50%, according to Rasmussen. That's as high as he has ever been, and the economy continues to do well. I do not think this all, all this stuff is really a threat to the Trump administration or to his viability as a 2020 candidate. Okay, so... Meanwhile, President Trump continues to be in hot water over the Michael Cohen Stormy Daniels payment. Right, that's a separate case from the from the case regarding Robert Mueller. That case, again, I don't think it's going to do Trump a lot of damage, but it continues to kind of n- nibble at his credibility. Now, Trump didn't have a lot of credibility to begin with when it came to matters sexual, but. The the media have been all over it. One of the things I find so amusing is the media are so confused why people on the right continue to support Trump's agenda when Trump obviously was lying about Stormy Daniels and paying her off. And the answer is, because we knew all of that, are we supposed to pretend that we are surprised in any serious way here? Are we really supposed to pretend that we are shocked and appalled by Trump's behavior? We've known about Trump the whole time. Okay, you knew about Trump too. The media knew about Trump when they were making him The Apprentice Guy on NBC, but they've decided this is their time to really undermine the credibility of President Trump as though he had tons of credibility to begin with. So, for example, a bunch of reporters went after Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday, asking, how can you expect anyone to believe President Trump?
2: But can I ask you, when the President so often says things that turn out not to be true, when the President and the White House show what appears to be a blatant disregard for the truth, how are the American people to trust or believe what is said here or what is said by the president?
1: Uh, we give the very best information that we have at the time. Uh, I do that every single day and we will continue to do that uh, every day I'm in this position. I don't know
0: what that question's even supposed to mean. I mean, honestly, like, well, what is she supposed to say to that? Of course she was not informed the proper truth about Stormy Daniels because Trump was fibbing to her too. And that's not a shock. No one believes her when she was saying that Trump didn't know about Stormy Daniels. But the media think they've really got Sarah Huckabee Sanders now. Ooh, we've caught Sarah Huckabee Sanders in a lie again. No, no one cares. Here's Jim Acosta posturing on this issue as well.
2: You said on March 7th, uh, there was no knowledge of any payments from the president and he's denied all of these allegations. Were you lying to us at the time or were you in
1: the dark? Uh, The president has denied and continues to deny the underlying claim and again, I've given the best information I had at the time. Yeah. Why can't you, you not just to answer yes, yes or no, whether
2: you were in the dark? I think it's a fairly simple question. Whether you just I think didn't it's a fairly simple answer that
1: I, I've given you actually several times now. They gave you the best information that I had, and I'm going to continue to do my best to do that every single day. Okay, Jeff.
0: again, they're just going to keep asking her the same question over and over and over, and then when she kicks back, then they're going to suggest that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a thug. Again, her job is to go out and dissemble on behalf of the president. Okay, that was also Jake Harney's job. Okay, that, that was the job of Robert Gibbs. Guess what being a press secretary is. Very often it is you going out there and lying on behalf of the president. Okay, let's not let's not be naive. Okay about how politics works. Let's not be naive about how all of this operates. Okay, there are just everyone knows when the president tells a fib, his press secretary is going to go out there and defend the fib. That is literally what they are paid to do. Okay, so but but again, the media have decided that they are hands clean in all of this. they, they can print as much nonsense and fake news as they want, and nobody is allowed to call their general credibility into question. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders, we're supposed to believe that she is totally undermining the credibility of a president who had very little to begin with. Here's Sarah Huckabee Sanders going after April Ryan. So April Ryan suggests that Sarah Huckabee Sanders was blindsided. Sanders kicks back, and then Ryan goes crazy.
1: Why didn't he talk to the White House press office about his impacting stellar statements about what was happening? Uh, the, the white side. house press office wouldn't coordinate with the president's outside legal team on legal well, strategy. Blindside. You said yourself Lally. you were blindsided. I actually it. didn't use it. that term. Well, but. I said it, but you were blindsided from <laughs> what you said. Well, for, uh, with all due respect, you actually don't know much about me in terms of what no, I no, feel no, I and what I don't 21 years to understand uh, how this operates. All right. I no, think no, we're good.
0: Right. Go ahead. Okay. So, uh, you know, there, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not being rude, but April Ryan thought she was being rude because again, The only thing anyone in the media care about is how they look on camera. They should stop televising the press briefings. They really should, because all it turns into is a bunch of grandstanding political theater on behalf of these reporters. And April Ryan was happy to do that, right? She went on TV later and she talked about Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was very street with me. I don't even know what that means.
1: So she was blindsided. This was not a personal attack on her. And for her to say something like, you don't know me, that was very um, street. I know there's street politics here, but that was very street.
0: To say you don't know me is very street. Well, you don't know Sarah Huckabee Sanders all that well. Like, what? But again, it just demonstrates that what the media love best of all about President Trump is the constant controversy. While they proclaim that they don't like any of this and they just want to cover the news straight, they really don't. They want to report what they want to report about the Trump administration. And when Trump makes a boo-boo, they want to jump all over it. And then they want to make themselves the story because now the story is April Ryan and Jim Acosta. The story is not really the president lying to the the American people and the American people not really caring because we knew all of that to begin with. Okay, so before I go any further, and I have a lot to say about some weird sex stuff in just a second. Now, if that's not a pitch, I don't know what is. But before I get to any of that, first, I want to say thanks to our newest sponsors over at ExpressVPN. So Facebook, as you may have noticed, has been in the news a lot, getting thrashed for letting third parties get your user data there are lots of internet providers who are, ga- who are grabbing your user data. Verizon, Time Warner, all of these places can record a list of every website you visit and they can legally give it to anyone. So if you are afraid of violations of privacy, if you are concerned about people taking your information and using it against you, if you are concerned about people aggregating data on you, well, this is why you need ExpressVPN. Okay, ExpressVPN allows you to privately and securely surf the internet without being tracked by anyone. You don't have to, like yesterday, tw- literally yesterday, Twitter announced that some 350 million users had had their passwords exposed, generally. Okay, you can't trust these big companies to maintain your security. That's what ExpressVPN is for. So, set up on all my devices. It only takes a few minutes. ExpressVPN app runs seamlessly in the background to my desktop, laptop, smartphone, or tablet. It protects me while I'm browsing, streaming, downloading files, or emailing, my network data is now encrypted. The IP address is masked. It keeps my activity and my identity completely private. This is something that you need if you're just trying to protect your personal information. Using ExpressVPN, you can safely surf public Wi-Fi in, in Starbucks, hotels or airports, places where you could have your financial data stolen, for example, this is what ExpressVPN is for. And for less than seven bucks a month, you can get the same ExpressVPN protection that I have been using. I feel a lot more comfortable. You know, as a public persona, I'm constantly scared that somebody's going to try to hack into my email because I assume there are more people trying to hack into my email than any place else and using public Wi-Fi to do it is one way to do it, well, ExpressVPN ensures that that's not something I have to worry about anymore. Every ExpressVPN plan is covered by a risk-free 30-day money-back guarantee, so try it and see if it works for you. After you've experienced the privacy and safety the ExpressVPN gives, you're not going to want to go back to using the internet without it again. Go to Take back your internet privacy today and go to expressvpn.com ben, and you get three months for free, expressvpn.com ben. That is E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash ben, expressvpn.com slash slash Ben, for three months for free today. Again, you're user savvy. You know this. You're on the internet all the time. That's why you're listening to the show. Well, ExpressVPN ensures that you are safe while you're using the internet. Again, protect your internet and data with ExpressVPN. Right now, expressvpn.com, slash Ben lets them know that we sent you. Okay, so there's a very weird thing that people are now talking about online. It's something that they call incels. What in the world are incels and why do they matter? Incels are involuntary celibates. Okay, in other words, people who want to have sex but are not. Right? which is to say most of the population, I assume. Right, But incels are involuntary celibates. The reason that they have become a thing is because last week, a couple of weeks ago, there was a 25-year-old Canadian killer who rammed his van into a crowd of people killing 10 and injuring 15, and the killer had written a Facebook post stating that the incel rebellion has already begun and all the chads and stacys, which I guess is some sort of slang for attractive people, would pay the price. So there have been a bunch of think pieces about how to solve the problem of involuntary celibacy. Point number one, I don't understand why involuntary celibacy is a problem. If you haven't earned, the, if you haven't earned somebody's love and affection enough to, for them to have sex with you, I don't understand why this is society's problem. But it just demonstrates that the victimhood mentality has taken over everyone in our society. You're a loser and you can't find somebody to marry you. Maybe it's because you ought to get your act together. Okay, maybe the reason you're involuntarily celibate is because you have not made enough of yourself to earn somebody else's love and affection. But when you live in a society where sex is believed to be owed, when you live in a society that's constantly promising that you, that sex is right around the corner, casual sex is easy to get, it's not a problem, no one's ever going to require anything of you. Right? When you watch TV and everybody is jumping in and out of the sack with everybody else, it does lead to a mentality that suggests I am owed this thing. right? I am owed sex. Everyone's getting it except for me. Involuntary celibacy is obviously a societal problem. But this is a very perverse view of sexuality. Ross Stout had it the New York Times has pointed out that for purposes of discussion, there are two types of incels. Hey, men who can't get sex as a general rule. It's usually men who are worried about involuntary celibacy. And people perceived by the left wing to be victimized by a society that has unfair standards of sexiness. So this would be people who are trans, who say that they can't have sex with the kind of people that they want to have sex with because as trans people, society has set up rigid standards of sexuality and people are falling prey to all of that. Well, Douthat suggests that the solution posed by those who see involuntary celibacy as a problem to be solved will be the redistribution of sex. That in the end, what we will end up doing is sponsoring people so that they can hire prostitutes or we can develop new technology like sex robots so we can have a quality of sex. You know, in the Bernie Sanders model, the top 1% of the 1% are having 99% of the sex and we must redistribute the sex as well as the pudding. This is the, the sort of move that Dowdhat sees coming with regard to involuntary celibacy. Now, we all rightly rebel at this idea because this idea is gross and stupid. It's not your responsibility to make sure that anybody else has sex, obviously, nor is it your responsibility to have sex with somebody just because they would like to have sex with you. The idiotic. But the reason this has even become an issue, the reason there are now all these think pieces, a lot of think pieces in the last week about involuntary celibates and how we solve their problems is because of this stupid victimization mentality with regard to sex. So I was what you would call a voluntary celibate okay, until I was married. I was somebody who did not have sex until I was married. My wife had the same standard. The reason for that is because I felt that sex was an adjunct to commitment. Sex was something that you earned as an element of commitment. I earned the love of my wife. I earned the commitment of my wife. She earned my commitment. And then we are willing and happy to have lots of fantastic sex, right? That is the way that society used to work, is that celibacy was not considered some sort of terrible thing to be experiencing. It was was something that was supposed to encourage you to better yourself and make yourself worthy of marriage. right? Conservatives have had the solution for a long time. A sexual morality that takes into account commitment. If we measure happiness by commitment rather than by amount and variety of sex, then the onus placed on us is to get someone else to commit to us. And we have a society right now that values sex above commitment that says that the happiest possible life is the one where you're having the sex with the most people in the most positions, and that's what's gonna make you the happiest. That's a lie, number one. Social science demonstrates that this is a lie. Promiscuity does not lead to happiness, it turns out. Sexual variety does not lead to happiness. Commitment tends to lead to happiness. But we're a commitment-phobic society and a sex-centric society, and that leads to an unhealthy focus on sex, and it leads to us seeing people who are not receiving this free and plentiful sex as victims of the society, as opposed to people who need to better themselves and therefore to earn commitment. Again, virginity should not be seen as something to be condemned. It's seen as a norm, not as a shortcoming until you have earned somebody else's commitment. But that's not the way our society has viewed it. If sex is the goal of life, then we're going to fall directly into this trap about redistribution of sex and, ins- and voluntary celibates being victims. Again, the reality is nobody owes you sex. Nobody owes you anything. Okay, You need to earn. Okay? And when I say you need to earn, I don't mean you got to be, a, you gotta be a, a guy who plays the game. You got to be a stud. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that if you actually want to have a happy life, what you need to do is make yourself worthy of the person with whom you would like to have sex, and that person needs to make themselves worthy of you as well. It means bettering yourself every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Become a better person. It's really interesting. You know, you rarely see. The guys who are complaining right now about involuntary celibacy, they're never complaining about involuntary, involuntary lack of commitment. Right? You never see these, the same guys who are talking about how they're not getting enough sex just random sex, you never see them talking about, you know, I've really been trying to get married for a really long time, and I've been unable to find women who are willing to marry me. Okay, that number is much, much smaller than the number of guys who are out there complaining about not getting the supposedly free and plentiful sex offered by by society. Okay, well, we're making a generation of pathetic men. That's that's all that's happening here. We're creating a generation of pathetic humans, um, men in particular, who think that they are owed things instead of having to actually be gentlemen, be strong defenders of family, be prepared to sustain a household in order to participate in lovemaking activity. Meanwhile, speaking of people who are being made pathetic, it's not just exclusive to men. It's also happening to women. The lead at the Huffington Post right now, literally the lead, okay, the top of their enormous website is Wet Dreams, the age of fish sex. I am not kidding you. And then it is a picture of a woman's feet and a fish, okay? And here is the story. Okay, Time for the Easiest Game this is by Claire Fallon, who I have no clue who she is. All I know is she has the lead at Huffington Post, and she's crazy. So here is, what she, here is what she writes. She writes, Time for the Easiest Game of, if you love this movie, read this book ever. If you love The Shape of Water, a movie about fish sex, you should definitely read The Pisces by Melissa Broder, a book about fish sex. The cover literally shows a woman in an amorous clench with a fish. The novel actually tells the story of a woman who has a torrid love affair with a merman. And then she says, both the, the, the Pisces and Guillermo del Toro's Oscar-winning Shape of Water seem to have arrived at an inflection point for heterosexual relations as some straight women have thrown up their hands in despair at the prospect of dealing with straight men. These men who grope us and talk down to us and consistently fail to clean the bathroom, we're supposed to make lives with them, let them touch us? No, you're not. You're supposed to find a good man and settle down with him. That was the idea. You shouldn't be having sex with fish, ladies. Okay, that's, it turns out that going after the bass right nailing the salmon that's not actually a good solution to you lacking the ability to find a man who is willing to commit okay the the, the uh, again how about women focus on bettering themselves and men focus on bettering themselves and both of the both of these things lead toward commitment women woke up one day says the huffington post to find that their husbands voted for donald trump and their sons have been bleep posting on incel boards okay just cuz your husband voted for donald trump doesn't mean that he's a bad human being again, this is so insane even so basically you're going to opt to to go after the, the white fish instead of, in, instead of sleeping with your husband because he voted for Trump? Even before we heard the claims about Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual harassment and assault and the ensuing avalanche of horrifying MeToo allegations, we heard about our president grabbing women by the bleep, Bill Cosby feeding women roofies, and R. Kelly allegedly sexually exploiting young girls. So many straight men we have been forced to accept are bad, fo- are bad to us and for us. Why would we take the enormous risk of loving one of them? And yet straight women do have desires. Cutting men out of our lives isn't a simple proposition that it's satisfying as the concept of going lysis stratus until men get their house in order might be. That strategy also requires straight women to deny their sexual urges. The handsome prince of our imagination has been exposed as a dangerous fraud, but we still need some form of romantic hope and sexual release. One seductive yet impossible fantasy might be the romantic attention of a man who lacks the exhausting baggage of male entitlement. To find such fantastical being, women, at least in fiction, have turned to the sea. Okay, maybe the emasculation of men is leading men to become pathetic, and maybe men's expectation of sex without relation to commitment is making men pathetic, and it's making women pathetic, and it's making everybody pathetic. And maybe instead of, instead of turning men into something they are not, which both men and women are doing, we should acknowledge that masculine behavior is a useful and necessary component of life. Instead of emasculating men, you should expect men to be better, and men should expect themselves to be better. Women set the standard for men, and men set the standard for women. Okay, this is just the reality in human relations. Maybe that's not the way it should be. That's the way it is. When it comes to sexual relations, if you want to have sex with somebody of the opposite sex, you are setting your standards. That's just the way that it works. What that means is that women should expect men to be better. They should expect men to be better, but they should not expect men not to be men. Okay, men are creatures who are going to want sex. But you can also dictate to a man, ladies, what kind of man you would like to have sex with. It's up to you to determine what type of person you think is going to make a good husband. And suggesting that all men are R. Kelly or Donald Trump, or that if they voted for Donald Trump, they are Donald Trump, or that if they disagree with you about feminization of, of, of boys, that somehow they're going to be bad husbands, We're leading generations of men and women to be unhappy. That's all that's happening here. You have unhappy men who believe that the expectation of life is that they're going to have as much sex as they want, and unhappy women who are living in the expectation that men are going to be under their boot heel and not act like men at any point in real life. And it's just stupid. It's just stupid. And that's how you end up with fish sex on the front page of the Huffington Post and incels killing people in Canada. Just ridiculous. Okay. We're going to get to the mailbag in just one second. But for that, you have to go over to dailywire.com. So for $9.99 a month, you can get a subscription to dailywire.com. That means that you get the rest of this show live. You get the rest of Andrew Clavin's show live. The rest of Michael Moles' show live. It means you get to be part of the mailbag and ask me the questions that you want answered. Also, if you get the annual subscription, you still get this. The leftist here is hot or cold Tumblr. You will enjoy it. You will love it. It is fantastic. Every element of it is, is just marvelous. Beyond all of that, I want you to go and subscribe right now if you have not to our feed over at iTunes or SoundCloud or YouTube. The reason being, because this Sunday, May 6th, we have a brand new edition of my podcast, a Sunday edition. It's the Ben Shapiro Show Sunday special in which I host weekly in-depth conversations with the nation's best thinkers on politics, news, culture, sports, everything in between. And the best part is for current subscribers to my show because you won't even need to hit an extra button. It's just gonna show up in your feed. And this week's episode is just fantastic. I, I can guarantee it's great. Okay, Jordan Peterson stops by and it's awesome. It's it's really high-level intellectual stuff. I think that you'll love it. And I, I really hope that you enjoy the show. I think that it's going to be just terrific. We have a bunch of fantastic guests booked for the next few months. Uh, it's it's a blast. So check it out. Please subscribe right now and leave us a review. We always appreciate it. We are the largest, fastest-growing conservative podcast in the nation. All righty, it's mailbag time. So let's do this thing. So let's just jump right in. Hugh, which specific Senate and House seats should the Republicans try to flip in the midterms? Well, there is a list today of of Senate seats, particularly that are up for uh, that are up for re-election. Democrats could lose seriously, up to nine seats. Okay, they could lose up to nine seats in the in the next Senate election. So I will give you the answers here. So, okay, jo- Joe Manchin right now is trailing by 14 points. Any generic Republican in West Virginia, North Dakota, Heidi Heitkamp is trailing by eight. She's a Democrat. Incumbent Democrat Joe Donnelly in Indiana is trailing by five. Claire McCaskill trails by five in Missouri. Montana, John Tester trails by five. Florida, Bill Nelson is locked into a deadlock with Rick Scott. He probably will lose that seat. Pennsylvania and Ohio, Democrats Bill Casey and Sherrod Brown are leading by less than two points each. Virginia, Tim Kaine is within three. So there are a bunch of Democratic seats that are up in the Senate. In the House, it's very difficult to name Republicans who are capable of flipping a blue seat, Uh, It looks a lot more like Democrats are going to flip some red seats. So I'd put most of, if if I were investing money right now, I'd invest most of my money in Senate races. I would not invest, by the way, in one particular candidate. I'd be remiss if I did not play this just because it's so amazing. There's a guy who is running for the nomination in Virginia, I believe. His name, is it West Virginia? Don Blankenship. Okay, Don, it's West Virginia. Don Blankenship in West Virginia trying to run against Joe Manchin. And um, he's an insane person. Okay, uh, here's the ad that he's currently running in the primaries in this West Virginia. Prim- again, if you blow this seat again, the, Joe Manchin has a 14 point deficit against generic Republican. Unfortunately, Don Blankenship is certainly not generic Republican. Here is the ad that he released legitimately this week.
2: Um, oh, no. Swamp captain Mitch McConnell has created millions of jobs for China people. While doing so, Mitch has gotten rich. In fact, his China family has given him tens of millions of dollars. Mitch's swamp people are now running false negative ads against me. They are also childishly calling me despicable and mentally ill. The war to drain the swamp and create jobs for West Virginia people has begun. I will beat Joe Manchin and ditch cocaine Mitch for the sake of the kids.
0: Cocaine Mitch, and then I love the kids who are just like, why am I even here, man? What is even going on? Yeah, that may be the greatest ad of all time. I will ditch the swamp people, China people, cocaine Mitch. Uh, yeah, by the way, the po- the only field poll of the race uh, has, it's a three-way race between a guy named Jenkins, a guy named Morrissey, and Blankenship. Apparently, Blankenship is getting 16% of the vote in the primary right now. <laughs> no! Just stop. If we lose any more Senate seats because we run crappy candidates, I'm going to be, like, seriously, enough, guys, enough. We just, we just can't. Okay, Matthew writes, Hi, Ben. With Mother's Day coming up, I found myself in a moral bind. My mother's an alcoholic. Most of my childhood, she would leave us as a family and disappear for a few months until she and my father finally got a divorce. She caused our whole family a lot of emotional and even physical pain, particularly myself when in a drunken rage, she told me she wished she would have had an abortion. This pain was a lot for a young teenager to handle, so I spent most of my time locked away in my room by myself trying to mentally disassociate myself from her. I rarely see her because when I do, I involuntarily become enraged because of the memories of what she did to us. Now it turns out her liver is failing from the years of drinking and the doctor said she will die soon if she doesn't stop drinking. As a somewhat newfound Christian, I believe in forgiveness, but I tried so hard to disassociate from my own mother that I almost see her as a stranger and I find it severely difficult to support her as she tries to go through rehab to save her own life. I know it's my mother, but she never acted as one, so it's very difficult to see her as such. I understand it's a very unique situation, but what would your advice for someone like me be? I really could use it. Okay, so Matthew, obviously, all my sympathies to you. And it's a broader question. What do you do with a parent who's just a bad parent? What do you do with a bad parent? Uh, you know, obviously, there are biblical injunctions to to respect your parents, to honor your parents. And it says, really, that you're supposed to honor your parents so your own life is long, so your life is long in the land. That's The reason that it says that is because honoring your parents is not just about what you're doing for your parents. It's about what you're doing for you. Whatever you have to do to come to peace with the situation with your mother is something that you ought to do. If your mother goes if your mother dies if your mother passes away you're going to want to be able to look back and say to yourself i was the good person here i was the person who did everything that i could and that's how i would see this yes you're the one making the sacrifice yes you're the person putting yourself in a rough position and when it comes to forgiveness you know i'm not going to say that some, i'm not going to stand in your shoes and say that you ought to forgive your mother for making your childhood miserable i'm not sure that that's something that anyone should be you know pushed to forgive but i do think that It is the, the the best thing for you would be to, to, all I can say is the best thing for you would be to come to some sort of satisfaction with your own behavior, some sort of standard for your own behavior that you can live with, where you're not going to beat yourself up later about the, uh, about the action that you took right now. So maybe that means driving your mom to the doctor. Maybe it means trying to be nice to your mom, but you know, still protecting yourself, still being emotionally wary because volatile people remain volatile. I don't think that in a lot of circumstances, they tend to stop being volatile. So again, I, you're not doing anything wrong if you're having a tough time in your heart forgiving your mom, but try to investigate what is going to allow you to sleep at night, and then I would act in, in accordance with that. Max says, All wise and knowing, Ben, I find myself consistently tired and procrastinating. How do you wake up so early and stay on task? I'm a huge fan of you and the shows. Uh, so I try to go to bed early. Like last night, I went to bed at like 10, 15, like an old person. Uh, so I, I would, you know, if I were you, I would try to, I, I would try to keep by the Benjamin Franklin admonition, right? Early to bed and early to rise makes man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Uh, so far, it's worked out well. So that's, that's my rule there. Austin says, hey, Ben, where do we draw the line between the government protecting public lands and national treasures like Yosemite and an overbearing land grabbing big government action? How do I reconcile my love for the national parks and my dislike for big government in general? Thanks. Well, Austin, I have to say, I think that there is a good case to be made for private parks in many cases. Uh, I do not know that Yosemite would have turned into a bunch of gas stations if it had not been for the national government well, siphoning it off. Now, I, I believe in environmental regulations. I believe that there are certain externalities that we have to protect against. But the national park system, I find kind of controversial in the sense that most of the things that we find beautiful in life, we are willing to pay for. And there are plenty of private parks across the United States that are quite beautiful and quite magnificent. I think that there would be plenty of people who'd be willing to give money. I'm sure that there are private. You know, I know several billionaires who would probably be willing to purchase Yosemite just to protect it. So... In, if if it's just about people would have come in and exploited the land, uh, I'm not fully sure that that's true, actually. I'm, I'm rather libertarian to the extent it's possible to be here. Um, Daniel says, hey Ben, can you explain why overregulation is causing the doctor shortage in the United States? Sure. Overregulation means you have to fill out a lot of paperwork. It means that insurance rates have gone up. It means that doctors are are being uh, prevented from entering practice. It means that they are forced to do a lot of things that nurses should be doing. It means they have more work and less pay. In short, when you have more work and less pay, that limits the number of people who want to go into a particular profession. That is the very short answer. Brandon says, hey Ben. How do young men such as myself convince our more adolescent peers to start growing up as opposed to the wild party hookup culture that has completely encapsulated our youth? Well, I mean, what I've always said to, to these, to, to people who are my own age, it's, it's, it... okay, so let's be, let's be frank about this. Trying to reason with adolescents is always a problem. The reason for this is because the adolescents have overdeveloped amygdalas and underdeveloped prefrontal cortexes, meaning that their emotional centers are extraordinarily responsive and their logic centers are extraordinarily underdeveloped. So trying to logic them out of all of this is very difficult. But what you can say is, you're gonna make decisions now that you regret later. And if you're not getting ahead now, then you are falling behind, right? The people who are most successful are gonna be the people around you who are buckling down and doing their work, not the people who are partying and wasting their lives and putting themselves at risk. Now, I understand that our culture has basically said that all fun is good, that 17 is the time to find yourself, that whatever fun you engage in at 17, you get past the rest of your life. Maybe this is true for some people. It's certainly not true for all people. I think probably as a general rule, it is, it is less true for girls than it is for boys because girls take particularly sexual activity a lot more seriously than boys do, just by virtually every psychological study that I've ever seen. Um, and so, yeah, I think that the, the acting like a jerk is something that gets ingrained in your character. If you're doing it when you're 17, my guess is that it's going to be harder to, to remove that from your character later than it otherwise would be. Daniel says, earlier in the week, you spoke about Marxism and its impact on our culture. Do you think the works of neo-Marxist thinkers like Gramsci play a similar role? So Gramsci, for those who don't know, was an Italian proto-fascist thinker. Um, He was a Marxist uh, who was actually much in vogue with, with Mussolini for a little while and his, his basic theory is that Marxism had failed, and what you needed instead was cultural Marxism. Marxism had suggested that there was an inevitable slide from capitalism and towards Marxism, and that eventually capitalism would degrade into Marxism over time as a historical prediction. Gramsci said, look, that's not what happened in World War I. In World War I, there wasn't this great class uprising to stop the war, and so what we really need is we need to look at the culture. We need to take over cultural institutions, and then we need to use those cultural institutions to re-inculcate a new sort of human being in the human heart. I think that Gramsci has been a lot more, his philosophy has been a lot more successful than the philosophy of, uh, of Marx himself. Cultural Marxism has been a lot more successful in damaging the West than the economic theories of, of Karl Marx. Okay, Susan says, hey Ben, how do we avoid whataboutism? Trump is in the office and therefore the leader of the GOP. Most of the leftists want to paint the entire GOP with one brush. How do we discuss ideas, not people? What we say is when Trump does something wrong, it's bad. End of story. And when Trump something does something good, it's good. End of story. And the only way whataboutism applies is not with regard to whataboutism, but you can say to the left, you are pretending to care about X, but you didn't care about Y. That's not whataboutism. I care about both. I think when Trump is is being garbage, he's being garbage. And when Clinton was being garbage, he was being garbage. And that's consistent. But you're not consistent. So that's not whataboutism. That's just saying to somebody that everybody should have an even standard across the playing field for everyone. Uh, So that's how you avoid whataboutism in these conversations. Alfredo says, hi, Ben. I'm a current PhD student in philosophy, and I enjoy watching your show every day. As a person in academia, it is one of the few things that keeps me from going insane. Something I especially enjoy is when you relate the topic you're discussing to broader intellectual themes from the great philosophers of the past. I'm excited to see prominent conservatives thinking seriously about philosophical questions. I have two questions. First, when did you start investigating philosophy more seriously? Second, do you think more conservatives should study philosophy? Also, what are some philosophy books you'd recommend to your viewers? So, um, when did I first reading philosophy? Probably in college, maybe late high school. Um, do I think more conservatives should study philosophy? Absolutely. I mean, I think the entire Straussian school—Leo Strauss, who's been sort of a, an ideological godfather to a lot of conservatives—he you know, obviously was was very much in, engaged in the process of teaching Plato and Aristotle and the ancients. I, I think that a lot of conservative thinkers, Mark Levin, I know, is very big on John Locke. Uh, the, there's there's something worthwhile to studying philosophy. In fact, my entire next book is probably going to be—I mean, the, I'm almost done with it. The entire next book is basically a philosophy book uh, and just check the bibliography for a list of, of books. I've recommended a bunch on the show. The, I think some of the summaries of philosophy are really good. There's one that's called The History of Political Philosophy with Essays on Various Philosophers uh, by, uh, by Le- edited by Strauss. Uh, there is uh, his Natural Right in History, obviously, is a very good book. Um, the Story of Philosophy by Will Durant is a good user-friendly guide to a lot of philosophers. I, I'm really fond of the writing of Walter Kaufman, who's an existentialist philosopher. Uh, well, he's actually he's quasi-anti-existentialist, kind of. Uh, but ex- but, his, uh, but uh, his, his books are really good. Uh, William Barrett has a really good book on existentialism. Uh, I love philosophy. I think it's really interesting to read. You know, try to read the primary sources first. Try to read you know, Nicomachean Ethics. Try to read Plato's Republic. Try to read all of those things. But I think that a lot of the summaries of philosophy are just as useful sometimes as reading, like trying to bully your way through 800 pages of Critique of Pure Reason it's probably not as user-friendly as simply reading a, a, a user-friendly summary uh, from a reliable source, like, for example, Durant. Okay, um, let's see. A couple more questions, and then we'll do things I like and things I hate. So, um, Nicholas says, Hey, Ben, I will be attending my first year of law school beginning in August. Any advice on how to mentally or physically prepare for the grueling journey ahead? Well, know that, number one, year one is the hard one. Years two and three are not so bad. Uh, second... I would say that whatever reading you are assigned, you should see if there's reading on the other side that has, been, that has not been assigned. I had a great time in law school because I did a lot of outside reading. Also, you know, get into a system early. Get into a system early where you're summarizing cases and you have an outline and you take good notes because... That's the only way you're gonna be able to stay on top of the material. Fred says, Ben, I have an atheist daughter, age 28, who recently left the Christian faith and now calls herself an atheist. She recently said that she finds the account of Noah and the flood hard to believe. Her reasoning goes like this. Flood never happened, along with many other arguments. Bible unbelievable, thus no God. I've always enjoyed your talks on the Old Testament. Looking for your help on Noah and the flood from the wise one. Okay, so it is really unclear whether Noah was a metaphorical character in the same way that Adam is a metaphorical character. Okay, really, this is sort of unclear in the Bible. You know, there's a lot of argument over when the sort of historicity of the Bible begins. And I think that the most common belief among a lot of religious people is probably it begins with Abraham. That once you get to Abraham, now you're talking about real people, as opposed to Noah, who could have been a a, a more more metaphorical creation. The Tower of Babel is more of a metaphorical story than it is a story about something where people actually built a physical tower to heaven and then suddenly were struck with a bunch of different languages. It's really a tale about fascism and about communitarianism trying to challenge God and breaking down. So the story of Noah, uh, I would say from a, from a metaphorical perspective, and this is why I think it's important, is a story about the triumph of family over the, over the sort of communistic, fascistic society that surrounds them. So the story of Noah is a guy protecting his family from an inundation, a cultural inundation. Now, is it, the, now it is true that there was some sort of flood, by the way, uh, in Mesopotamia. It wasn't a global flood. It was probably a local flood. And the, and the story is wrapped into this, right? If you actually read more ancient documents than the Bible, there are flood stories in those documents, right? Ancient Mesopotamian myth has talk about giant floods happening in the Middle East. So there probably was a flood of some sort that was happening in the Middle East at that time. But the actual psychological impact of Noah, uh, I, I would say that it's really more about... That, that entire portion of the Bible is contrasting various types of civilization. So you have the Tower of Babel which is a civilization built on the idea that if we get everybody together and we build toward a common purpose, but we ignore the individual, then we'll be able to build something great and holy. So basically, the communist empires of the USSR, and that breaks down into a bunch of squabbling because it turns out that people are individuals and they are tribal and they're not going to bow to a giant human-created tower. Okay, so that's, that's the story of the Tower of Babel. That is juxtaposed to the story of the people who are surrounding Noah, who are sort of these libertines, who suggest that they have access to everybody else's property and can engage in any sexual immorality they want. It's the libertine society, right? The ultimate individualistic society that says, we can do whatever we want even if it damages other people and we don't care about the community, externalities, be damned, doesn't matter. And then there's Noah. And Noah's model is the family, is what survives, right? That in a, in a survival situation, the only thing that survives is the core family who get on an ark and protect themselves from the inundation and then are able to spread out based on that family. That's that's, I think the metaphorical value of no. Again, people who say that they don't take the literal truth of the beginning of Genesis as as a guide. Welcome to the religious world where a lot of people have been talking about how the the beginning of Genesis is a metaphor for a very long time. And I've recommended books on this program about about how to rectify breaches between science and the Bible. I talk about this stuff all the time. This is, I'm sorry, it sounds like your daughter is a very simplistic atheistic thinker. And that's a problem. I think a lot of the people who are the biggest proponents of atheism are people who have never spent five minutes with the Bible. They're people who just look at the Bible. They find a couple of verses they think are awful, and then they don't bother trying to understand how that fit into context, why that was written at the time that it was written, whether it was a progressive thing when it was written, what the relationship is of revelation and reason, why it is that God gave a, God gave a document to human beings as opposed to just changing human beings into angels. Why, did God, why would God give a document, a written document to human beings And then say live by this document especially knowing that human beings are bound by their time and fallible in my figure what i believe is that god gave the bible as the enzyme that catalyzed the progress of humanity that basically what god said is here is a moral guide for you here right now okay there are certain immutable principles in it these are certain basic principles like the ten commandments there are certain basic moral principles about sexuality right because human nature doesn't change but there are certain other elements of the bible that are clearly dictated to time and place because if i were to say to if i were to give an order of, of living to mathis right now right Mathis is in the room and i would give an order of living to him it would include a bunch of things that were time dependent right don't spend too much time on the internet would be one of those things okay well what if the nature of the internet changes or what if the internet doesn't exist in 20 years so then the question is how do we adapt those general principles to living a daily life right and what god is doing when he gives the bible in my belief system is god is saying To a specific set of people, here's how you ought to live. And now it is your job to use reason to interpret what I am saying in conjunction with new evidence and uh, uh, new evidence as it arises. Now, the reason that some of the Bible, so people would say, okay, well, the Bible means nothing because if everything can evolve, then why doesn't the Bible evolve? And the answer there is that there are certain things that do not change. And the things that do not change are the things that go to human nature itself. They go to human nature itself. That's why I say sexual sins, God knew full well, what human nature was, and human nature has not changed in the past five, three and a half thousand years. Okay, and it's not going to change anytime soon because human people are, are human beings are human beings. Okay, so all I would say to your daughter is, she really, if she's going to reject Christianity on the basis of she doesn't believe the the just so stories of the Bible, maybe she ought to do a little deeper reading into it before she rejects it. Uh, otherwise, she's she's doing herself a certain level of disrespect. Also, if she believes that she's, I don't know why she would believe, by the way, that she doesn't believe everything in the Bible and therefore she's an atheist. That doesn't follow. Right? There, there are plenty of other religions, there are, there are plenty of other takes on God. Um, just because you don't believe the, the words of the Bible doesn't mean that, that there isn't a, a supreme being that, that guides all of us and, and has set the universe on, on a certain course. Okay, um, that was a pretty long answer, so we'll have to cut the mailbag there, and then we'll do some things that I like and some things that I hate. So, speaking of, you know, the, uh, we were talking a little bit about all these people on the left who cannot believe that people on the right would support Donald Trump despite his moral failings. It's amazing how short people's memory is. This is not whataboutism, okay? People on the right should condemn President Trump's moral failings. But it is worthwhile noting that people on the left who are whining about why people on the right would still support Trump's tax cuts and support his administration, his continued presidency despite the fact that he's garbage with women, Right, they they seem to forget there was a guy named Bill Clinton. So, if you've never seen the movie Primary Colors with John Travolta, it is a a pretty good movie with Emma Thompson and John Travolta. It's a little too warm and fuzzy on the Clintons, but it is obviously an adaptation of Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. Emma Thompson is Hillary Clinton here. And uh, it is, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good movie.
1: Governor Stanton, this is Henry Burke. I met your grandfather once when I was a boy. He was a great man. Thank you, sir. People don't know you. They probably don't even remember your state. There, They're waiting to
2: be swept off their feet. Just wanted to say welcome aboard.
0: What? Let's go. I said I'd meet with him. Did you tell him I was coming on board? No, 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 no. But you call and say, I'm sure the kids won't laugh. Uh, well, I'm just
1: delighted that you're on board. <laughs> Mrs. Stanton, I'm not sure. I've never helped run a presidential campaign before.
0: Neither have we. But that's how history is made, Henry.
1: If you had to swallow enough... Garbage You can say it. We're
2: x rated, yeah. And, and
1: me too. If you believe what you read in the paper, yeah. it's gonna be the war thing, the drug thing, and the woman thing. We're in trouble. Like, what are you suggesting about? we do? Might be a good idea to get on some TV shows. I'm not gonna go negative. Any jackass can burn down a bar. Not negative, itself. Well, I'm not gonna do it.
0: Gonna get so okay, so the entire movie is, is, I think, too glowing about Bill Clinton, but. but it does suggest that Bill Clinton has been involved in a lot of terrible, terrible things, which obviously is true, and the reality is that Bill Clinton was involved in a lot of very, very bad things, Uh, and the left was fine with all of it. So, you know, now when they're complaining about immorality in politics, it's a little bit galling. It's a little bit galling to people. Okay, other things that I like. So, as we have heard from the left incessantly, Mike Pence obviously is a deep homophobe who hates gay people. How do I know he's a deep homophobe who hates gay people? Well, because yesterday he swore in Richard Grinnell, the first openly gay ambassador in U.S. history, uh, as the as the ambassador to Germany and uh, his and Grinnell's husband is the guy holding the giant Bible there on which Grinnell is uh, on which Grinnell is swearing in. So obviously Mike Mike Pence could barely stand this. He had to run screaming from the room. Uh, he he actually tried to use electroshock therapy on Richard Grinnell to turn him straight again. Uh, but when that failed, he had to swear him in as ambassador to Germany.
2: I Richard Grinnell do solemnly swear. I Richard Grinnell do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies foreign and domestic. Against all enemies foreign and
1: domestic.
0: Okay, so obviously, so much hate for the gay guy there. Wow, just everybody, everybody losing their mind. You can see Mike Pence is so unhappy about all of this. What, what ridiculous crap. I mean, again, this is one of the things that people should understand about religious believers. Religious believers can believe that you are participating in sin and still think that you are a good person. Religious believers can believe that what you are doing is something that they do not agree with, but it's a free country. It's so, it's so demeaning to religious people to suggest that because we think something that you're doing is a sin, therefore we think that you should be imprisoned or locked up. Only lefties think this way, really. Honestly, only people on the hard left who don't believe in a limited government believe that they ought to be imposing the morality from above. Okay, time for a quick thing that I hate. So Bill Ayers is a terrorist. Uh, Bill Ayers is a guy who started the Weather Underground And he tweeted out yesterday, there's a guy who tweeted at him, I served honorably as an infantry officer overseas. How about you? Bill Ayers tweeted back, I served honorably in the struggle against war for peace and justice. This guy, it is an amazing thing. When we talk about media bias, the fact that Bill Ayers was not a major campaign issue in 2008 is an incredible thing. Can you imagine if Donald Trump had hobnobbed with a guy who legitimately bombed the Pentagon in the 1970s? Okay, Bill Ayers built bombs that were set off at the Pentagon, at the New York City Police Department, that were set off at the US Capitol, Okay, a bomb that he designed went off in an apartment and killed three people, including his then girlfriend. Okay, and Bill Ayers was a guy who worked relatively closely with Barack Obama. Barack Obama called him a guy from the neighborhood. He lied about it. Did you see any of the sort of hysterical media coverage over that that you've seen over Stormy Daniels? Of course not. It was considered gauche to mention Bill Ayers. It was considered gauche to mention Jeremiah Wright. Bill Ayers is a bad human. Okay. And Bill Ayers I can say, And this is a guy who still has not apologized for having set bombs in the 1970s because obviously it's okay to try and bomb places and kill people so that you are, so that you are making a change in favor of peace and justice. Again, just demonstrating once again the bias in the media. It's pretty, pretty amazing. All right, so we'll be back here on Monday. Make sure that you subscribe because on Sunday, actually, we have our first special, our first Sunday special. Please check it out. I really think you're going to enjoy it. It's me and Jordan Peterson for the full hour, as Larry King would say. So go check it out right now. And we'll be back here on Monday Live I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the Ben Shapiro Show. The Ben Shapiro Show is produced by Senya Villarreal, executive producer Jeremy Boring, senior producer Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Engaro. Assistant to the editor Julia Whittle. Audio is mixed by Mike Carmina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. The Ben Shapiro Show is a Daily Wire Ford Publishing production. Copyright Ford Publishing, 2018.
2: This show is brought to you by HelixSleep.com. Sleep is absolutely critical, especially as you get older, but no two people sleep alike. That's why Helix offers several different mattress models, each designed for specific sleep positions and preferences. Go to HelixSleep.com slash Daily and take their sleep quiz to find a mattress made for you. Whether you're a side sleeper, a stomach sleeper, a hot sleeper, or a cold sleeper, Helix has you covered. I took the Helix Sleep quiz and was matched with a Helix Midnight Mattress because I want a medium firmness and a sleep on my side. So far, my new mattress is a godsend. Don't want to take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It's even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Take the quiz and order the perfect mattress right to your door, shipped for free. It's so quick and fun to unbox, you won't believe how well you sleep. All Helix mattresses come with a 100-night trial and a 10- or 15-year warranty. Helix even offers financing options and flexible payment plans. A great night's sleep is just a few clicks away. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailywire and use code HELIXPARTNER20. That's helixsleep.com slash dailywire code HELIXPARTNER20.